Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you as always. An honor and a pleasure. Oh, the great Trump divide, my friends. Uh, It exists in multiple ways at multiple levels. Uh, You have the Trumpian divide within the Republican Party between those who are willing to support the president and willing to go along as as far as he is uh, enacting policies that are helpful to the country, that are good for the country. And then you have those who believe that he is not infallible, but however he's got to fight and get it done is fine by them. Uh, that's been on display, I think, in the last week or so. It's, well, in different ways, we see it all the time. And then you have the divide between those who believe that Trump could be or is a very good president and those who just completely hate this administration, think that he is destroying America, that he's a traitor. I mean, the American people are living in a series of alternate universes, it seems, right now. And uh, there's, among Democrats... This growing uh, chorus of, you know, now it's all now it's all coming together. Now it's all coming apart. Now Donald Trump is in a lot of trouble. I don't see it that way. And some people that I respect a lot uh, on the right are raising some some alarm now. People that weren't getting all freaked out when Democrats and the media were crying wolf for months over all things Russia, are now finally saying, hey, you know, I, this is this is a something. This is not a nothing burger. This is, I guess you'd say, a something burger. Uh, it's not a, a, a double-double whatever. I don't know. I like this stuff from In-N-Out Burger. I think it's, I think it's delicious. Uh, I'm trying to remember the, the off-menu menu there. Um, but it's something they're saying. I am not yet convinced that it's something other than a massive PR blunder and that, once again, you know, the the indisciplined, the shoot from the hip, the off the cuff, uh, improvisational counter messaging strategy of this administration of let's just be honest of Donald Trump and the people that are immediately around him, but mostly of Trump himself. It keeps the media off balance. It allows him to wage asymmetrical uh, information operations against them, in a sense, right? It allows them to wage information uh, or or allows them to to fight back in ways that they can't anticipate. Uh, And yet here we are with a situation where the administration is, well, they've been under siege for a while. Um, but now it's looking pretty bad. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a difficult circumstance for Donald Trump Jr. And 
I wish he had just been more forthright about it from the beginning. Here's what he had to say on it. In retrospect, I probably would have done things a little differently. Again, this is before the Russia mania. This is before they were building it up in the press. For me, this was opposition research. They had something, you know, maybe concrete evidence to all the stories I'd been hearing about, but they were probably underreported for, you know, years, not just during the campaign. So I think I wanted to hear it out. But really, it, it went nowhere, and it was apparent that that wasn't what the meeting was actually about. Now, I want to be a, a nerdy grammarian for a second, uh, although I have to say I— I've forgotten most of what I was taught in Catholic and Jesuit school about about uh, about grammar. Um, but this is a there's a conditional sentence that is necessary here. If if then. Right. If the administration, if Donald Trump and his top people are, in fact, or were, in fact, part of this conspiracy to work with the Russians against the Hillary campaign, if that's true, then the meeting that Donald Trump Jr. took is suspect, problematic, uh, shows more than just bad judgment, shows bad faith, and might have political consequences. I still don't think it will have legal consequences, but might have uh, political consequences. Um, but if this is all still just w what we know so far, which is that everything that has to do with Russia is— exaggerated, is magnified, is made to seem like it's something bigger than it is, if that's the case and continues to be, meaning there's no more information that comes out about this, we don't have further evidence of, as the phrase is now being used constantly, intent to collude or something like that, uh, then this is just a meeting where nothing happened. We should all be incredibly wary um, about well, someone like uh, Representative Adam Schiff, the Democratic Party, he's making this case about about conspiracy. I want to I want to let him uh, let, let's play the sound and then I'll tell you why this is so concerning for. I think this is evidence uh, that goes to the issue of collusion. Uh, the question is, is it sufficient evidence? And I think we need to do a lot to corroborate uh, some of the, the evidence that we've received before we can draw any conclusions. Uh, but here, you know, I think you have quite plainly, just in the four corners of these emails that have now been released and the authenticity is not in question, uh, you have three central campaign people, indeed three of the most important people in the Trump campaign, who go to this meeting with the full expectation of getting help from the Russian government. So are there issues of whether there was a potential conspiracy to violate U.S. election laws? That is certainly a very real issue that needs to be investigated. Conspiracy to violate election laws. I, I will tell you, I am always, we the, the conspiracy statute is something that we should be really careful about. It, you should be cautious uh, and, and concerned. Whenever someone starts talking about conspiracy statute, because uh, if sitting down, if the possibility of getting information in a meeting is somehow criminal, even if you don't get that information and didn't know enough of the background for the meeting to know that the information you were getting was in any way illicit, that that opens up a lot of territory to, to prosecute people for all kinds of stuff. Um. Now, Jay Sekulow is out there, obviously, defending the administration uh, left and right, and he said that there's just this is just a complete—the criminality aspect of this is absurd. 40. Well, the president acknowledged this is a legitimate area of investigation. 
Well, there's no illegality. I mean, the question is, when you're talking about an investigation, Savannah, they're investigating what violation of what law. That's what I always look at in, in any case. What is the law that's alleged to be violated here? And, and the truth of the matter is that a meeting under the circumstances that were described by the release of the emails that Donald Trump Jr. did yesterday is not a violation of the law. Isn't that so what I think the investigation it, seeks to find out? And isn't it too early to make that conclusion? The president has made that conclusion, but isn't it too early to do so? No, I don't think so, and, he, and here's why. We know what the facts are now, right? It's clear. The email, the entire chain of emails was released. So the chain of emails are out there. And under that scenario, exactly as the facts are and exactly what happened, there's no violation of any law. There's no statute that's even in play. No statute even in play. Completely agree. And I should note that our friend Andrew McCarthy over at National Review has also said that the, criminal, the accusations of criminality at this point are just reckless. They're unfounded. That, you know, it's one thing to argue over whether whether someone committed a crime. It's another thing to argue over whether there's even a crime that we are talking about that could have been committed. Right. And that's where we are with this meeting. Uh, and I think we should all be uh, very upfront and, and honest about the fact that it doesn't look it did, was not helpful that Donald Trump Jr. was saying that, that it was about adoption. That, that looked uh, that looked shady. There was something amiss with that but that does that's not the same as anything being criminal and also the assumption now that this woman was it was working on behalf of the russian government there's a huge difference between ties to the russian government and an agent of the russian government in these discussions right like working literally for the russians on their orders and it's being reported in the press as though it's the latter or at least people are in, are assuming and insinuating it's the latter when that's not that's not clear uh, I, you know, and also there's the hindsight effect here of, well, we've heard so much about Russia. There's been so much talk about it going on. Yeah. Now, I think if someone approached Donald Trump Jr. and, and or even a few months ago and said, hey, some Russian wants to give you really damning information on you know the Democratic Party or Hillary or what Hillary a few months ago, obviously wouldn't really matter. But I, they'd be on guard about it. Right. But earlier on they didn't know this was gonna happen how many of us were sitting around last summer thinking oh gosh the russia the russian interference in the campaign we didn't know about it so this is why the if then construction is so important if there was a collusion effort if there was an a a um unified subterfuge and uh political sabotage campaign between trump's people and the russians then this meeting with Donald Trump Jr. is is not is not good. I mean, it's a it's a problem, but it's a political problem. But if it's that 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 whole context is not there, meaning that this was just the meeting and it happened and whatever, then there's really not a problem here. Uh, it's all about how you contextualize the meeting, and that really that really matters. Now, the explanations of it, I said, I, I wish the Trump comms team would get it together with this and. Uh, clear, you know, say people who are out there saying, "Oh, this is Donald Trump saying this is all about transparency." Uh, that's not helpful either, because we know that the New York Times was going to release these. So I, I find that to be, you know, the, the people need to make sure that they're not just they're they're trying to defend the administration and actually making things worse, which I think has happened here with all of this. Um, but there's collusion and there's conspiracy. These are different things. 
conspiracy, which is is covered by a criminal statute. It's more than one person who are, who have a specific criminal act that they are that they seek to undertake. Uh, you know, you better really it better be very clear. You know, remember, it all has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And once you're talking about throwing somebody in prison, not for having done anything or even attempted to do something, but for expressing the idea of doing something, it's it's getting it's getting pretty close to a thought crime, my friends. We should be very, very careful about this. Look at what happened with the John Doe investigations up in Wisconsin with Scott Walker. They're trying to conjure away, trying to pull together. This is a Wisconsin statute about coordination between campaigns and outside groups. All of a sudden, coordination was the issue, not collusion. But, oh, we need to find campaign coordination. Well, what does that really mean? What qualifies as coordination? And that gray area, in fact, is what the power-mad prosecutors in Wisconsin used to hound all the uh, associates of Scott Walker they could, throw uh, throw some people in, in jail, and uh, and you know, try to ruin some lives. Uh, so we need to be very clear definitionally about what is a violation of law, what powers we're giving prosecutors, and beyond a reasonable doubt is the criminal standard for putting somebody in prison. And uh, the standard, I think, that the, the media is using here for the Trump administration and how they're talking about it is— if we can th- if we can think of if we can theorize a way that this is bad, it's bad. Uh, and I, I think that's deeply unfair on the coll- on collusion, though, which keeps being used as a term. Remember, collusion is not a, no one's sitting around like, hey, how many years you got in prison? Oh, you got 10. You get going away for a decade. That's rough. What'd you do? Uh, collusion. No, that's not a thing. There's no one who's sitting around in a cell because of collusion, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, I, I don't know of, of a crime that that centers around uh, collusion, but that's a political crime. And in this context, right, that's a violation possibly of the trust of the American people. And so they are using that word as a stand in for the high crimes and misdemeanors that, yes, are a part of the impeachment proceedings for a pre- for a presidency. That, that That's the. The underpinning of all this is they're trying to create the perception in the American people that something wrong was done, and the only redress is, you guessed it, impeachment. And if they can get it, removal from office. And so that will be a a major part of the effort for the Democrats going into the uh, midterms. I should note that Representative Brad Sherman of California has introduced today— Formal articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump, accusing him of obstruction of justice. They want to impeach him so badly. They they are they're going to go for it as as soon as they have a majority. If they get a majority, they're going to go for it. And you're going to hear a lot about impeachment in the months ahead. All right, eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. What do you think of uh, what the Trump administration has said and done in the last twenty four hours with all this stuff? You think they're on the ball or are they uh, messing up? Are they dropping the dropping the pass in the end zone, uh, or I guess a touchback in their own end zone? Whatever football analogies, I'm messing up. We'll be right back. We got Jude in Mississippi, WBUV. What's going on, Jude? Hello, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. Okay. Uh, yeah, you kind of reminded me of something, you know, and I had a thought about this. 
Uh, you remember the movie A Few Good Men? Very well. I've seen it. I, whenever it's on, like, basic cable, no matter what point in the movie, I tend to, like, start watching it and finish it. Right. And I know you're a, a movie buff, so that's why it kind of tickled me. And I said, oh, i got to call in. Well, you remember uh, Tom Cruise was, you know, he's defending the... Uh, the uh, the accused Marines, yeah. The accused Marines, and then I can't remember the actor who was representing Jack Nicholson. I, I know him. I love the guy. He's a great actor, but I can't remember what his Kevin name. Kevin Bacon. Yeah, that's him. Anyway, uh, that's what I'm here. That's what I'm here for, Jude. Wow. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. At some point in the trial, you know, they discuss, you know, taking Jack Nicholson all the way to the brink, and you know. And that if you do that and you don't get him to confess, then you could be charged and actually put in prison, you know, for doing this to this high-ranking military officer. Well, you know, the president is commander-in-chief. If that is really something that applies in military rule, why couldn't it apply here? And that these people making these false accusations, they could be, they could be tried themselves or brought up on charges. Well, I, I've I've never been military, so I can't speak to what uh, what the specifics of UCMJ are. Or, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I you know, and that's a movie. I'm not even sure if that's really true. If you get in trouble for that, but I know the, there are different rules inside the military. You know, I know, for example. Uh, marital infidelity, if you're if you're active duty military, is is a problem, right? It's not just you know in in everyday life in America, you know you're not going to get fired from your job for marital infidelity. But my understanding is inside the military, you can get in trouble for that. Again, I I don't know, so if I'm wrong, I know there's a lot of military listening. Apologies, but my sense is that you know UCMJ has different uh, rules, regulations, protections, and expectations than civilian law and military and military courts. Uh, for those who are active duty, are have a different, you know, there's just it's just different uh, than what you'll get in civilian court. So, I, no, I, I don't think that there's anything that will apply here in terms of uh, going after the president. But this president doesn't forget, and I, I, look, I, I wouldn't want to cross him. So there you have it, Jude. Thanks for calling in, Evelyn in uh, North Carolina, WPTI. Hi, Buck. Hope you're doing well today. I'm fine, thank you. Thanks uh, for calling in. Okay. I don't smell collusion, but I certainly do set up. And I I have every faith in our president that he's strong, he's going to get through this. I don't believe it for one minute. And if we're talking about collusion, what about Hillary with the 20% uranium deal and how Bill Clinton it was having all of his speeches tripled in Russia and all that money going into the Clinton Foundation. You talk about collusion. I tell you, this... Yeah, Hillary was just straight up taking... Hillary and her husband were taking bribes, Evelyn. It's called a bribe. <laughs> when someone pays you yeah. 800 grand for a speech that no one needs to hear, that's a bribe. You got it. And the thing is, they're going to keep trying, Buck, everything. This isn't going to be over. If this doesn't work... There'll be something else. Absolutely true, Evelyn. Thank you very much for calling in. we got to hit a break here, team. Uh, I agree with Evelyn. It's never going to stop, so dig in, team. The 
Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. I got good news for you. It's always fun to be able to tell you some, some good stuff here. I try to tell you good news as often as I can. Kid Rock has announced a run for the Senate. Yeah, I, I, this is a real thing, everybody. Kid Rock, I didn't even know about this till we just, uh, I, was this just announced recently? I mean, I mean, oh, it was today, but I don't know if it was the last hour or two. Uh, yeah, Kid Rock is going to be running for Senate up in Michigan. His real name is uh, Rich, Rich, Robert Ritchie, uh, and he is an outspoken Republican. He campaigned for Mitt Romney. He performed at the 2016 Republican National Convention. This is great. I, I wonder how, I, mean, I don't know how, you know, when I say how serious he is, I wonder how much of a campaign infrastructure he has in place. And I have no idea what he is like on the issues, I must say. I think we've reached out to him before. It'd be great to get him to come on the show. Uh, we'll, we'll try again now that he's a political candidate. But this will be a lot of fun. Uh, we have quite a cast of characters in this country who have run for and and won elected office when if you were to go back in time to i don't know like the 80s you know way way back you know when when buck was in diapers uh and and you were to say that over the course of the next few decades you'd have the biggest action star in movie action star in the world become the governor of california with arnold schwarzenegger a third or fourth tier comedian and SNL alumni become a senator from Minnesota with Al Franken, uh, a former pro wrestler, uh, and really I think his his best uh, on-screen work was probably playing a character in, uh, in the movie Predator, but Jesse, Vin- and then of course all the later on, I, I'm not up on, I just know he's got some, some crazy, crazy stuff that he talks about now. Uh, I don't follow him, but um, Jesse Ventura. Uh, he became the governor of Minnesota. Minnesota, what's going on with you guys up there with some of these politicians and, and elected officials? I, Minnesota's cranking out some some funky stuff. Uh, but, yeah, you might have Kid Rock. Oh, and, of course, Donald Trump, president of the United States, who is a, a media mogul, reality TV star, and just all-around famous dude. Uh, so the line between celebrity and politician is very thin these days thinner than it's ever been before and I, look i think kid rock may, maybe he'd be great i have no idea the guy could be a a, a very a very pensive and uh, a very uh, ethical and and concerned considerate fellow for all i know he always see, he always comes across well i don't look i've never met him i've never interviewed him but and all this stuff and i, I I have to say, I like his work. Michael Bolton celebrate his whole catalog, uh, but no, I, I like I like Kid Rock stuff. So that was an Office Space reference for those of you who might have been like, "Why is Buck is Buck having some kind of a problem in the Freedom Hut?" No, it's good, it's good. Uh, but yeah, so he's running for office. All right, um, now there there was a an exchange. I thought this was worth spending a few minutes on, uh, and also I wanted to take a break from the Russia stuff. I just uh, there's only so much, right? There's only so much Russia analysis and news or collusion analysis and news that one can handle um, before we get to a point where it's just like, come on, man. I mean, it's it's just not what they say it is yet. That that much is, is pretty clear. Uh, I think Jonathan Turley, who's a Democrat, but who keeps it pretty real on constitutional issues, 
wrote maybe in the Hill today that he didn't think that the collusion, he, he thought that collusion was not proven in any way by those emails. So even the political crime uh, is iffy. And remember, it's not really, I shouldn't even use the term crime, the political infraction, you know, the political uh, misstep. Um, okay, but this is this is not that. And I wanted to get it in the, get it, uh, get it going here before we get into other news items of the day. So I am on air during uh, Tucker Carlson tonight. So I didn't get to see this until after it had aired. I mean, I'm, I'm here doing radio. But this was quite an exchange. Now, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters is a very hawkish guy, very interventionist. I've heard him do a lot of analysis on Fox. I think I, I've probably done a few segments with him on national security over there, although I, I, can't, I, I can't recall all the times I've been over there. Uh, so L- Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters and uh, Tucker, who is now a non, I think we could say a non-interventionist on foreign policy and also is trying to calm some of the hysteria around all things Russia-Putin collusion, uh, perhaps in a way that annoys some people as being con- uh, politically convenient for the purpose of defending the Trump administration always. But I don't I think it's probably... Heartfelt. He makes a very important. Uh, he makes some very important points about lessons we've learned since the Iraq War, and uh, but th- this is how the exchange things got. And these are people who are, from the Republican perspective, at least on the same team. Generally, things got testy. Things got a little uh, a little rough in there. Hard to see why he's a threat to us. Why not just accept that people who are bad people share our interests and side with them? You sound like Charles Lindbergh in 1938 saying, Hitler hasn't attacked us. I beg your pardon? Slow down. Slow down, Colonel. I'm not in any way. You cannot compare me to someone who would make apologies for Hitler. And I don't think Putin is comparable to Hitler. I think Putin is. You just compared me to a Nazi apologist because I asked a simple question, which is, slow down, slow down, which is, why does it contravene American interest in a common cause with a group that's trying to kill ISIS? invaded his neighbors, broken the long peace in Europe, he assassinates dissidents and journalists, he bombs women and children on purpose in Syria, he is as bad as Hitler, and I'm sorry, you know, if you don't like the Charles Lindbergh thing, I will retract that. But let's just say you sound like someone in the 1938 saying, what's Hitler done to us? Putin is the equivalent of Hitler. I would hate to go back. Hitler. Rather than calling people a Okay, wait, wait. Can we pause this first? Can we pause? Just pause this for a second? Okay, first of all, first of all, whoa. This is like when you're at the party and, you know, the music comes off. Everyone's like, whoa, what just happened? I was not expecting this exchange between these two individuals. But there's some very, there's some important substance that maybe gets a little bit lost in the midst of what is a, a testy exchange uh, between two cons- two Republicans, at least. I don't know if they'd both self-describe as conservative. I assume they probably would. Although these days, you'll notice in, in the post-Tea Party era, those who aspire to have very large following or do have very large followings in media use the, use the term for themselves conservative a little bit less. I remember when all if you were on the right, man, you, you better say you were conservative. You wanted everybody to be on board. Now it's it's really more Trump specific than it is conservative on the right for a lot of for a lot of people. But okay. So Ralph Peters says to Tucker uh that you would first the, the whole don't go to the Hitler comparison. This is it's a rule. We know the rule. You you don't don't go to the uh, Hitler comparison. Um and I'll actually be discussing a little bit of uh, briefly, Hitler, well, probably later on tonight when we talk about 
the history of, of eugenics, but that's a completely separate uh, issue. But I mean, comparisons of anyone's positions, policy to anything that's uh, Hitlerian is almost always going to be uh, a, a, a not a good idea. Um, and to say that somebody would make excuses for Hitler today because to, to compare not wanting to be particularly belligerent towards Russia uh, in a military sense to making excuses for Hitler, I, I think that was for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Peter. I think that was really unfair. And he kind of knew it. You know, he said, I'll retract it. But then he went on to say, well, yeah, but you sound like somebody who would have been making OK, maybe not Charles Lindbergh, but you sound like somebody who would have been making excuses about why we shouldn't do anything with Hitler back in the, in the late 1930s. Uh, what what is this this newfound uh, bellicosity that is pretty bipartisan towards Russia? Uh, I I think that we're we're getting into a strange place here. Where what, what is the uh, what would be acceptable to the anti-Putin crowd at this point? Uh, and you know, Ted Cruz earlier t- uh, today pointed out that you know the Obama administration was was pretty palsy with, with the Russians. I mean, they were palsy with everybody that was you know, causing problems for America, but here's Senator Cruz. Part of the irony uh, of this media obsession with Russia is that the Obama administration began with Hillary Clinton bringing a big red reset button to Russia, saying they were going to reset the, the, the relationship with Russia so that she and Obama were, were going to be friends with the Russians. That's how they began. Uh, If you look at what happened with Russia, Russia invades Ukraine, and the Obama administration does nothing, is utterly ineffectual. You have John Kerry saying he desperately wants to provide Putin with an off-ramp, didn't want an off-ramp. And the policies of the Obama administration were constant weakness and appeasement. You know, one of the best things recently announced was the Trump administration's intention to go forward with placing anti-ballistic missile batteries in Poland and the Czech Republic, you know, those were scheduled to go in 10 years ago. And in 2009, in the opening weeks of the Obama administration, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton canceled the anti-ballistic missile batteries in Poland and the Czech Republic. Why? Because they wanted to appease Putin. There was a lot of Putin appeasement going on under the Obama administration. And, and there was a lot of friendly gestures towards Russia and concessions made to Russia. But now, because of the current political moment in which we find ourselves, where the media is telling us that Hillary lost the election because of Russia hacking and Russia meddling and all this other stuff, if you are not uh, making noises about how you're ready to just go go out there and, and, you know, punch everybody from the Kremlin in the nose. You're some kind of uh, some kind of weak, unpatriotic uh, buffoon or something. I mean, it's just crazy. What are we going to in, in Syria? What are the options? Uh, the, the smart option is to try to figure out uh, whatever levers we have to get the Russians to be less uh, willing to drop ordinance on civilians use whatever diplomatic leverage, do, do whatever we can to get them to be more helpful in the region. We're not about to start shooting Russian planes out of the sky to make a point about Assad, okay? That, that's, and that's a terrible idea. And, and it seems to me now there's a, a, a game that a lot of people in the media are playing, which is that, hey, you know, I, I'm going to talk about how Putin murders journalists and Putin's such a bad guy and he's, he's so tyrannical. And let, let's keep this in context. He's not anywhere near as bad as Hitler. That, that's a That's a completely 
indefensible statement. And if I recall, I believe that is what Lieutenant Colonel Peters said, that he, he's as bad as Hitler. I mean, this, this is nonsense. Russia is like, a, you know, it's a country. People are living there. They're doing their things. There's no death camps. I mean, it's just crazy. But this is what happens in a moment of mass hysteria. It seeps into other discussions. It seeps into your consciousness. And for the Republican Party right now, I think a lot of the GOP, especially the more interventionist side of it on foreign policy and on national security issues, they find themselves in this position where they're, oh, they're, they're, they're talking too tough on Russia. You know, we got other things to worry about. We don't need to be picking fights and dealing with the Russians all over the world. And we've already got sanctions on them. R- relations are already very frosty right now. Uh, but I want to get I want to continue on with that exchange with the Tucker because it has to do with foreign policy in the direction of the GOP, which I still think is very much up for grabs right now. There is no Trump doctrine. It's not clear what the Trump administration's foreign policy is going to be really at all other than not weak and appeasing. But OK, well, that's one thing. But there's a lot more. Um We're going to run to a break. We'll come right back and finish this up. Stay with me. Showdown on Tucker Carlson tonight between uh, Tucker and Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters, who I'm sure like each other and and get along, you know, in general and probably agree on 90 percent of stuff. But on this foreign policy issue and Trump and Russia, it, it got uh, it got a little heated. Continue with the clip, please. Rather than calling people accommodationists and say we're not exactly well, sure what's going to happen, we can only make good decisions made, day by day. You made your career being an American conservative patriot, and now you're suddenly cheering for Vladimir Putin. I'm not in any sense cheering for Vladimir Putin. Well, you said and it's you not accommodate. It's not. It's not. I'm cheering for America as always. Our interests good. ought to come first, and to the extent that making temporary alliances with other countries serve our interests, I'm in favor of that. Making sweeping moral claims, grotesque ones, comparing people to Hitler, advances the ball not one inch, Vladimir actually. Putin it blinds us to reality. Comparable. He hates America. He wants to hurt us. And I'm sorry, all this, suddenly Vladimir Putin's a good guy. Russia's okay. No, it's not. I don't think anyone was saying that. I don't, I don't know. I, maybe I missed something. Uh, well, I shouldn't say anyone. I know Trump has said things that are nice, but, but I mean, I don't think Tucker was saying that in, in the context of their discussion. That seems a, a, a little unfair. But the uh, the collusion and and Russia hysteria has resulted in, I think, a, a blinding of, of some Republicans to the realities of what we can and can't do when it comes to opposing Russia. Look, I mean, in a place like Ukraine, what are we what were we really going to do? When Putin, ha- when that referendum, that you know, Russian-backed referendum happened in Crimea and, and the Russians uh, it made it an appendage, a, a province of Russia, what are we, okay, we condemned it, we put on sanctions. Are we really going to land the 82nd Airborne in the Crimea and say, hey, give it back to Ukraine? I don't think so. I don't think that would be a good idea and in the context of Syria specifically. The, the Russians, because President Obama was very slow to act and always wanted to take minimal action in Syria, the Russians were setting themselves up to have a pretty strong hand uh, between Russia and Iran. The Assad regime is not going anywhere. So I, I just think it's interesting that there's been such an abandonment of uh, realpolitik and uh, realism and now we're supposed to just walk around talking about how terrible Putin is all the time. And Putin is not a threat to you and me, my friends, in, in a day to day sense. And in terms of the uh, in terms of Russian policies right now, it's 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 exaggerated. I'm not saying see now this is where you get. Oh, you're saying Putin's not so bad. That's no, not that. But he's not Hitler. That's crazy. 
And he's also a, a rational actor in a world where you know, we, we don't have that many uh, levers to pull with some of the more intractable problems that are out there, dealing with uh, radical Islam and, and jihadism, dealing with North Korea. We've been doing the foreign policy consensus stuff on these issues for a long time and not getting very far. In fact, you could argue things have been getting worse. In fact, in the Middle East and North Korea, things have been getting worse. So some new thinking would be helpful. And there is a world of difference between, all right, on this one issue, we can work together, or on this one issue, there's some common ground to find, and hey, we think everything you're doing is great and fine and good. Um, that's uh, that's what I think is lost somehow in, in these debates and in these discussions. Uh, I will say that, that tr you know, the, the f fondness that so many people seem to have in the past for openness and in, in discussion and foreign policy and always, you know, talking first. I'm talking about Democrats here. You know, let, let's have a discussion. I mean, the oldest uh, thing in the State Department is always the old phrase, the State Department, is you've got three options. There are three options for any foreign policy issue. Uh, nuclear war, suffer in silence, or diplomacy. Uh, people that, and that's a joke, obviously, but people that adhere to that generally now, when it comes to Russia, everything has to be on a uh, in, in an aggressive posture. Uh, there's there's no room for mediation. There's no room for you know in, until this is what it all comes down to, and this is what I'm getting at. It, our foreign policy is being hijacked by those who don't really care about Russia and what it's doing around the world. They don't really care about our foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia. They just want to use this as an issue to undo the undo the results of the presidential election. That's what this is all about. That Russia has become a stand-in for Hillary's loss, and Russia and blaming Russia is a way of undermining the Trump administration. So it's a domestic political uh, impulse that is being played out through the lens of foreign policy that really has very little to do with foreign policy. Uh, all right, we are going to be joined by Kim Strassel from the Wall Street Journal for a great interview in just a few. Stay right here. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. All right, welcome back, team. We have Kim Strassel on the line. She is the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech, and she's a columnist and editorial board member at The Wall Street Journal. Kim, great to have you back. It's great to be here, Buck. Uh, okay, what's your what's your overall take? What's your what's your bottom line on what's happened this week with the administration, Russia, collusion, Donald Trump Jr.? Where are you on all this? My bottom line is that this has to be one of the most boring stories to hit Washington in so long, because uh, it's a giant nothing burger, uh, and the degree to which the media is escalating it into something it is not is just astounding to me. What do you think they think they're going to find out? I mean, we already have Senator Kane using the word treason. We have others who clearly think that this is going to lead to a, a criminal a criminal case of some kind. In fact, I think earlier today, didn't we have the first member of Congress introducing an article of impeachment against Trump? Yeah, that actually happened. I'm saying that here. Representative Brad Sherman of California uh, is do you think they really believe they're going to get to a criminal indictment against Trump or one of his top people, or is this just all part of the political climate? Let's say I think that they don't care whether they do or not. I mean, obviously, they would like that in the end. But in the meantime, what they recognize as strategy is 
of diverting away from any other agenda that the Trump administration is pursuing. So the longer that they can keep the media focused on collusion and try to delegitimize the president, the harder it is for him to get through with his message and the administration's message. And uh, it disrupts the work that Republicans are trying to do in Congress. Um, It potentially divides Republicans, forces them to take sides on issues. So for them, in the short term, politically, this is a very valuable strategy for them. In the long term, whether or not they get a conviction uh, is not likely, but they figure, what the heck, we might as well try. I know on The Wall Street Journal, uh, there was a piece, White House aides worry policy will take a back seat to email uproar. I feel like, Kim, that's almost a certainty at this point, right? Uh, there's no way that there aren't ramifications, there aren't second-order effects of a White House that is under siege like this in ways that don't benefit the American people. Essentially, they have to handle this issue first and foremost. That means they are not dealing with one way or another taxes, one way or another immigration, etc. Yeah, and this is the one area where I had some criticism for the president with regards to this Russia question is that, look, I don't have a problem with the president tweeting. My problem was with the content of the president's tweets. He is sitting on top of what is probably the most powerful media tool that any elected leader has ever had, which is that Twitter account. And he could be using it to every day be forcefully pushing his agenda, pressuring Republicans, pressuring individual Republicans who are holds out on some of this legislation that he wants to see through. Uh, you know, undermining the Democratic arguments uh, for why you don't want health care change, he could really be using it effectively. But every time he instead gets frustrated and tweets about the media or tweets about Jim Comey or tweets about the Russia thing, it, it, it's diluting the, his ability to get his agenda out. So, uh, you know, if they want their policy agenda to be first, they're going to have to work a little bit harder to make sure it's first. One of the major frustrations that the, the president has revolve, uh, revolves around leaks. Uh, we, I've spoken to you, or rather I've, I've seen your piece before and talked about it here on air, Kim, about uh, leaks and, and the, the criminal leaks that have been ongoing uh, during this administration. But there are also the palace intrigue leaks, right? There's the, uh, the, the White House advisor telling somebody that some other White House member or staff person is going to get fired or there's infighting, whatever it may be. How do you think this information, I know you don't know, but how do you surmise this information about Donald Trump Jr. found its way to the New York Times? I don't, that is an interesting question. And you raise a very concerning issue about this White House, which doesn't get as much attention as it deserves for the simple fact that the press loves that there are rival camps within this administration and that they get leaks from them. And so you haven't had uh, kind of stories worrying about the effects that this is having on this White House and the degree to which it is undermining its mission. And, you know, were I Donald Trump, that would be one of the first things uh, I or my chief of staff would be focused on is figuring out who in this is is doing the leaking. But also that because that might also involve some wholesale change and sweeping out at this White House right now, they do have a number of rival power centers of different people who have very different agendas and who want the president's ear. And it's all well and good to say that it's nice to have a team of rivals, but if those team of rivals are ultimately attempting to use their position to 
undercut each other and bring to, and hurt the administration's agenda, then then that needs to change. So what I have to assume happened here is that Donald Trump Jr. probably disclosed this information either to congressional investigators or to the special counsel who's now looking at this. Someone got a glance of it and decided for whatever reason uh, that it would benefit them internally in some way to get it out in the press. Yes, a team of rivals would make sense. A, a team of enemies inside your White House is definitely not a good idea. And it's starting to feel right. like that exists at some level. We just don't know uh, who's on what side just yet. Uh, we're speaking to Kim Strassel. She's author of The Intimidation Game and a Wall Street Journal uh, editorial columnist. Kim, uh, where are you on Healthcare right now. Uh, what do you think about Mitch McConnell saying by the end of the week they're going to have a new bill? We're being told it's going to be, well, meh. It's not going to be great, but it'll be better. Uh, what do you think? Well, first of all, I don't necessarily think it'll be better <laughs> because let's be honest here. What just happened is in these backroom meetings is you had a team of moderates that whined and moaned until they got more Medicaid money and until they ran and hid on the, quote, politics of the rich argument and demanded that several of the Obamacare taxes remain in the bill, I mean, remain in effect so that they could pay for all of their pork for their states. So this bill is not getting better, which is why I'm actually a big fan of McConnell's decision to get it out onto the floor, because the reality is, is that the longer this drags on in a back room, the more these guys up their demands, they can do it without any, you know, uh, consequence to themselves because it's not happening in the open. I think they need to get a base bill, get it out there. And then if anybody wants anything more, make them pass an amendment and make them convince the rest of their colleagues uh, that this is uh, a good thing to vote for. And if not, then understand that this is how democracy works its ways. They'll have had a chance to make their argument. And if they don't win, that's just too bad. Um, but they need to just get it on the floor, begin the process, because I think at that point, too, you have grassroots groups that are going to mobilize. The pressure significantly increases at that point for people to get to yes. What happens if they don't get a bill passed in the Senate, Kim? Do you think that there would be some legitimate pushback and, and political consequences? I mean, I, how long do we give them before we say this is unacceptable? Or, or are we are we already should we already be there as Republicans? Yes, we should already be saying that this is unacceptable. I think the delay over the last couple of weeks was unacceptable. They were elected to do exactly what they're supposed to be doing right now. And the consequences of this, in my mind, are severe. I think if they do not get this bill passed, that they say goodbye to the Senate next year. Because if they can't even do their number one campaign promise, then voters are going to legitimately ask, we gave you the Senate, we gave you the House, we gave you the White House, and there's nothing standing in your way to doing this. You set up a system by which you can do it with 51 votes, a simple majority. You can't blame the Democrats or a filibuster. But if you can't even agree, so if you fail, it's because you couldn't agree yourselves. You've chosen to not govern. And yes, they will pay a political price. Do you think the Democrats are planning to just run a, a we will impeach Trump campaign for the midterms or they'll be do you see any the beginnings of of uh, a message? Uh, my understanding from the Democrats, I mean, my understanding is they've already embraced the at least we're not those guys. That's what I've been. That's what I've seen. Yeah, their messages are going to be twofold. One, that this is a corrupt administration, uh, and you see that every day with the uh, you know, stories that they're doing about Russia collusion and, and various other things. I saw people now talking about the Hatch Act, 
whether or not if Donald Trump Sr. talked to his son, he violated the Hatch Act. I mean, they're going to try to get him on anything. So that will be one side of it. But the other piece of it, and this is what Republicans need to understand in Congress, will be, look, Republicans can't govern. They are incompetent. You know, at least when we were there, we got things done. Uh, We passed Obamacare to begin with. They can't get their act together enough to unwind it. So why should you allow them to continue being in charge? You know what's scary about that, Kim, is that's actually a pretty that's a pretty compelling if they don't get health care passed. It's a pretty compelling argument. It it is a compelling argument. And, you know, I think the other thing that Republicans need to understand is not only the risks of that argument, by the way. And so for all those who are out there saying, oh, you know, just let's let Obamacare collapse under its own weight. Let's not do anything. Democrats will get blamed. Baloney. It will fall on Republicans. But the other thing they need to understand is Democrats are not going to cooperate with them on anything under any circumstances. So, you know, all those that are now saying, yeah, we want to work with you, work with us on a health care bill, they'll water this thing down until it's a disaster, and then they'll pull the rug out in the end. I mean, there's just – there is no way that Democrats are going to cooperatively help Republicans with an agenda in any way, shape, or form, and the GOP needs to get past any belief that that might be the case and realize that this is all on them. One more for you, Kim. What's the one thing that you wish Donald Trump, if you could give him, if you could send him an email tonight that was like, please do the following, uh, Commander in Chief, it would be what? It would be to, to begin using that megaphone he has and leading his party. Because look, but you know this as well as I do. We've watched politics for a long time. One of the reasons that parties in a minority struggle to do anything is because they have no natural leader. And one of the reasons majorities get stuff done is because they're all behind a person who's in the White House. And the problem we have at the moment is a majority that's sort of in a minority status in that the president is not out there. You know, what he ought to be doing is giving an Oval Office address on why you want to do health care and how it's going to help people, um, and, and, and which not only pressures Republicans but reassures the public about the mission here. Uh, he needs to be out there every day tweeting not offensive things about the media or Chuck Schumer, but concrete examples of stuff that's not happening because Democrats will not confirm as nominees. You know, we've got two people that have been appointed to sit on the Federal Energy Regulation Commission, Regulatory Commission, FERC. Its job is to approve pipelines. Right now it does not have a functionable quorum. It can do no business. Nothing is happening in that area because Chuck Schumer is obstructing these nominees from being confirmed. So I would love to see him start making very powerful issues about Democratic obstruction and his policy agenda. Messaging discipline and policy focus. (laughs) That would be fantastic. Let's hope it happens. (laughs) It would be great. Kim Strassel, everybody, check out her book, The Intimidation Game. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, It's in The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech, and read her columns on The Wall Street Journal. Kim, thank you so much for the time. Always great to have you. Thanks for having me. All right, team, 844-900-2825. We're going to run into a break, and we'll be right back. Stay with me. said I could never vote for anybody in my party that would say they were going to ban people because of the God they worshipped. When he talked about David Duke and pretended that he didn't know who David Duke was and didn't know what the Ku Klux Klan did, you didn't have Republicans coming out saying, I can never support Donald Trump because he's racist. They'd have a thousand other excuses why. But 
they always overlook that. How far are they willing to go? How much of this country and our values are they willing to sell out? But aren't you a Republican? Um, I am a Republican, but I'm not going to be a Republican anymore. I've, I've, I've got to become an independent. And... That is the Joe Scarborough version of bravery. Go on the uh, Trump-bashing left-wing Colbert TV show, and in front of that studio audience, just tell everybody how terrible Trump is, how the Republican Party has been corrupted, and then bask in the glow of that public adulation. Everyone cheer, yay! Let me t- I'm going to tell you something, and it's going to be hard, everybody. It's going to be hard for you to hear this room full of Democrats and Stephen Colbert, who hates Trump and is a political hack. Uh, but I'm not going to be a Republican anymore. I've decided. I know. I know. It's hard. I've decided to leave the party. Yeah. No surprise. No surprise there. Uh, th- th- you'll see a number of these short term defections, by the way. If if Trump's agenda gets rolling and Trump is doing really well, I promise you, you'll have the, the, the next speech you'll see, the next big Joe Scarborough moment, not on the Colbert Report, but probably on his own show, will be, you know, Donald Trump's really turned the ship around. He's really got things going here. And I just I'm a Republican again. Uh, it should be noted, though, before we all um, stand around and talk about how wonderful, how brave, how I know you're not going to do this at all. But before we discuss Joe Scarborough in glowing terms for his decision to become an independent, so it's going to be alongside Bernie Sanders. It's crazy. You know, look at me, look at him. We're in the same party now, independent. Uh, So there you go. Uh, Joe Scarborough, Bernie Sanders, the independents. Well, Scarborough is not a senator, but he was a member of Congress for the Republicans for, uh, I don't know, a little while. Uh, but here's part of the here's the problem for Scarborough, uh, beside the fact that uh, I, I think that at some point he should show up for his TV show and not look like he's uh, some some dude in the suburbs who's taking his Akita for a walk. Um, but he which is I just you always he always dresses like he's just come back from a, a warm up. I mean, he's like warm up uh, in warm up gear. He's just come back from uh, Pilates class or something. Uh, but Scarborough was part of the Trump phenomenon. Scarborough was pushing Trump. Uh, he was very friendly with Trump throughout. I don't mean friendly with him 10 years ago. I mean friendly during the campaign. So now when it is most politically convenient, when it is to his greatest advantage to abandon ship and at, at MSNBC, by the way, all of the all, all of the momentum is on the anti-Trump train. You know, I will say this, to be fair to CNN, I think part of CNN's ratings woes come from the overcrowding of the, quote, resistance, meaning that because MSNBC is coming at it already from such a clearly anti-Trump point of view, CNN is kind of like an also-ran anti-Trump. You know, they're like, oh, we don't like Trump either. You know, MSNBC is like, sorry, we were here first. Uh, that's that's the reality of, of the cable news race right now. And and in the media ecosystem in general, if you're going to be the anti-Trump uh, outlet, you better, one, have been there all along, and two, be really anti-Trump. And so that's why I think CNN has some problems, because, it, they, by the way, they could have covered this administration as straight-down-the-line journalists, and I think they'd be doing much better, meaning a, a neutral or as close to neutral as one can get 
editorial line towards the Trump administration for CNN, I think would have worked very well, meaning just they just chase the facts and their brand is journalism. Instead, their brand is opinion journalism that's pretending not to be opinion journalism. And MSNBC is just a, as much as it pains me to say, just a more honest place in this regard. Um, but I digress. So Joe Scarborough is uh, saying he's no longer a member of the Republican Party. I don't know if that's official or if he was just saying that as a line to get some claps on the on the Colbert report. Wait, it's sorry. That's the old show. Whatever it is, tonight with Stephen Colbert, the Colbert Report, which I will say was was a much funnier show. Colbert's version of an O'Reilly esque character was much funnier than Stephen Colbert ever was or or will be, most likely. Uh, so yeah, Scarborough is is the first. There'll be others. There'll be others that try to defect towards the center or maybe even defect to the Democratic Party because it's tough right now. Uh, to hold the line for Trump and to hold the line for the Republican Party, which Trump is the de facto leader of, is not easy. It's not easy in the media. It's not easy for people in their day-to-day lives. Uh, personally, I think you get a lot of heat for this, and they don't make it a—it's uh, not a fair playing field, right? You're not allowed to make your arguments because you automatically are forced to defend whatever the, the worst thing is they can think of Trump. That's what you are— pushed to try to explain and and decide as you know tr- try to come up with some rationale for i don't know why did donnie trump jr say some things about the meeting that don't appear to be true a few times over you know why did that happen i just want to talk about what matters to the country the media wants to talk about what is difficult for trump and joe scarborough wants to talk about whatever's best for joe scarborough buck that's so unfair i mean gosh come on man look at this hair swoop it's like we're related i know joe i know hitting a break here team back with much more in just a few he's an ex-cia officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty but i do have a very particular set of skills Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. What aboutism is rampant these days? Um, and you'll hear this talked about in the context of, of how people are defending uh Donald Trump in particular, because there have been other efforts out there to influence elections. And we certainly had a criminal investigation ongoing with Hillary Clinton and the way the media treated that very real FBI investigation of an individual in her handling of classified information was was treated by the media in a way that we, we could never be in any doubt about just how in the tank for Hillary and the Democratic Party they were. But then you, you get into the reality or the uh, the rhythm, really, of what about this, what about that? And you don't want to use this to avoid a discussion of uh, the problem at hand. Uh, we have I saw a few pieces about this today, and I've, I've mentioned whataboutism here on the show. Uh, which is a, a fancy way or just a, a new way of talking about a, a diversion, a, a move to talk about something that you're more comfortable with. I, I should note that in the cable TV world, 
this is the way that a lot of a lot of pundits handle almost everything so that they'll go on and what you end up doing is if especially if you're going to be in opposition on like a CNN or if you're going to be a conservative on MSNBC or you're going to be a liberal on Fox uh, people who want to get on TV will say yeah I'll defend that that really tough to defend position you know I'll 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 be the one that defends that I remember I was asked at CNN and I just declined because I had other things I had to do that day uh, but I think they wanted me to come on and talk about what what Dr. Carson had said about about prison and about uh, same sex attraction, something like that. I don't remember the specifics. It was a long time ago. But I was just like, no, nah, I don't think I don't, I, I've got other things to do today. Uh, but the way that people in a hostile environment on TV usually go about their segment or the way that the pundit will try and. Uh, hold their ground is to just completely ignore whatever the issue is and talk about what you want to talk about. Politicians will do this as well when pushed. And as we see now, because we have a pundit and TV star as president and uh, Obama was really his greatest skills were very similar to that of being an actor, his skills of, of rhetoric and persona and charisma. Same thing, by the way, with Trump, just very different rhetoric and persona and charisma. Uh, but the way that politicians and pundits will deal with a subject that they don't particularly want to have to get into the merits, the facts of, is they will just immediately shift to something else. So they'll let's say they bring me on TV. They say, uh, well, Buck, look at what this look at this racist tweet by a Trump supporter. What do you think about that? And now I think I'd be completely justified in, in this specific tactic, given the hypothetical circumstance I'm coming up with here. But if I said. Uh, you know, this is typical of the media trying to box someone in with a tweet that means nothing when in reality we should be talking about health care. You know that the Trump administration's trying to expand coverage, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, that, you'll, this is the, the classic technique because you only have you have a very condensed. You see, c- cable TV is a largely rigged ecosystem for argument. Uh, it's oh, it, it very much the, the visual cues are very important in all of this. The timing of the segments, you know, you'll notice when a a host likes a guest, the guest will be allowed to speak without interruption uh, for longer periods of time. Usually, the guest is one on one with the host, and there's an entirely different atmosphere. Whereas, if the host is going to be confrontational, there's multiple, there's rapid fire interruptions, and of course, then it just usually escalates from there. But on TV, you see a lot of whataboutisms. People, they will uh, shift the subject matter to, well, what about this and what about that? What's interesting, and I, I, I saw a piece, uh, like I said, David Harsanyi on The Federalist wrote something on this. Uh, ben Shapiro, these are two people who are uh, much uh, ad- admired friends and guests on the show. Uh, ben Shapiro wrote about something on The Daily Wire along these lines. And they're breaking down that... What aboutism is shouldn't be a a reflexive response. We should not feel like we're in a position uh, where we automatically just sh- we shift the topic. Oh, uh, a great example of this is Ahmadinejad when he went to uh, Colombia and they tried to ask him some questions. I think about about uh, homosexuality in Iran, and he just was like, well, look at what you guys did to the Shah, or, you know, look at what happened, and look at U.S. foreign policy in, you know, the Middle, the Middle East over the last two decades. I mean, it's just a complete 
Uh, it's really a, a, a non sequitur, meaning it has nothing to do with the issue at hand, but also it was a complete diversion and digression. Uh, what, what a, because he didn't want to talk about that at Columbia University. And then I, I think he actually responded when he was at Columbia, well, there are no gay people in Iran, which for the liberals in the audience at Columbia, this was years and years ago, but I remember it, uh, that was a, they were like, oh, gosh. This guy, I don't understand. He's a leader. He's an he's a leader from an oppressed country of the third world with that that is that is non-Western, non-white majority. Like, w w how do we? We're supposed to think that this he's going to say things that are worth us hearing. Not that he's a, a bigoted lunatic. Oh my gosh, you could tell that at Columbia there were so ah. This is before we use the term snowflake, but the snowflake phenomenon has been prominent on campuses for uh, a long time. Um, anyway. The whataboutism in the context of Trump and the Trump administration is that you, you have to strike a balance between uh, talking about how the media is unfair and not just using media unfairness at every turn as an excuse for whatever it is Trump says, whatever it is Trump has done, or you know, if, for example— uh, if if I'm going to push on the issue of infrastructure spending, which I know the administration says it's supposed to be a public-private partnership, and they've got some fancy plans for infrastructure, which a trillion-dollar plan, who knows if this is ever going to get off the ground based on the speed with which we've seen everything else happen or uh, not happen in the Congress in recent uh, months. Who knows if we will ever get there? Uh, I, I'm I don't know. I'm not making any prognostications about what's going to go through with this Congress and what's not. But if I were to say that that's not a conservative, uh, that's not a conservative proposal or that we should as conservatives, we shouldn't push for more government spending. It's not useful. And I don't think it's a an intellectually honest place to be to say, well, well what about if Hillary was president? You know, then, then things would be so much worse. OK, yeah. But we're trying to we're trying to work with what's going on right now and, and make it better. And what about Hillary can't be the response to everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, other other conservatives out there are saying this. And this is not um, uh, this is something that's been coming up a lot recently, because I think especially with the uh, you know, it was interesting what, what Kim Strassel, who I think is just fantastic, by the way, uh, what she mentioned before about how Trump needs to lead and use his Twitter account for policy. Yes, it is a good thing. It is a useful thing for the president of the United States to be able to reach so many people and push back against the media narrative in the way that he does using a Twitter account. But it would be nice if he used it not just to hit at the media, to hit back at the media, not just to counterattack and uh, and deal with the Russia narrative, but also to promote policies that people can be enthusiastic about, to promote ideas and ways forward for the Republican Party that are constructive and that will unite and uh, and be useful to the party, quite frankly. I mean, that would be a great thing, and I would like to see more of that. And I think we get bogged down in, what about Hillary? What about this? What about that? Uh, the constant transition as a means of defending everything that Trump does, the constant transition to some other thing that may be true, by the way, and some degree of that is necessary. You know, it, it is impossible to understand the media's hatred for Trump and put it in the proper context without citing the Hillary Clinton email investigation. I don't think that that's unfair to do. In fact, I think there's a necessity if you if you're trying to be honest and fair minded about it. But we need to draw some boundaries. There needs to be some uh 
some honest, some co- consistent honesty about where we stand on issues within the Trump administration, regardless of whether it would be worse if we had a Democrat or whether you know Trump is, you know, things are tough. I and mean, we expect things to be tough, right? They say this is the hardest job in the world, by the way. I, I don't think that that's true. I think anywhere, any any job where you're, you're super famous, don't have to pay for anything and get a private jet service and have uh, have armed guards all over the place protecting you. I don't think that's the hardest job in the world. But uh, whataboutism is real. We should keep an eye on it. It should not be used in a reflexive fashion to excuse everything the Trump administration does. But we are going to have to also use it when it comes to the media's double standards and duplicity. Uh, team, we've got much more, including the new FBI director and a discussion of overpopulation and the left's uh, insanity over it coming up. Looks like the FBI is going to have a new director pretty soon here. You have uh, Christopher Ray, who was uh, pledging to be independent today in front of the Senate during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. Uh, This guy is a former DOJ official. He's also a defense lawyer. Uh, I always feel like if I had gone down a legal path, I would want to be a defense lawyer more than a prosecutor. That's just me. Um, But he, yeah, so he has quite a resume. And he said at one point during the hearing today that if the president asked him to do something unethical or illegal, he said, quote, first, I would try to talk him out of that, out of it, and if that failed, then I would resign. You know, it's amazing to me how few government employees resign. Given how incredibly politicized many of the issues that face the executive branch, not just under the Trump administration, but under the Obama administration, really, let's be honest, under most administrations in recent memory, there have been very contentious issues. And I think it is part of our bureaucratic culture now that people like to maybe talk to the press and get their story out there anonymously. They'll play the game politically in that sense, but they won't take the hit to their paycheck. You know, they they won't take the risk of standing up and saying, you know what, I just refuse to be a part of this anymore and I'm going to stand, uh, therefore, are going to stand up publicly and resign. Given how much self-righteous after-government service uh, memoirs, how many uh, self-righteous after I finished my government service memoirs there are out there, don't you think that we could expect at some point someone would resign in protest? Now, the, the closest thing we've had recently was acting Attorney General Sally Yates at the DOJ, but she was fired. She didn't resign. And uh, she grandstanded while in office. You know, she, she could have just resigned, but instead she wanted to make herself an anti-Trump martyr. And as we see from her most recent Twitter activity, which now all because of Trump, now all public officials have to have some Twitter presence, it seems. Uh, she decided to force the administration or force the president to fire her instead of resigning in protest. But in general, I just think you see very few resignations. You see very few people who are willing to take some actual uh, risk to their careers or, as I said before, risk to their bottom line, their bank account. Uh, And it's only after the fact when they're trying to sell the memoir, trying to sell their story and become maybe a, 
a CNN contributor or something that all of a sudden you'll see there's a willingness to speak out about whatever impropriety or usually it's just a dispute over politics. It's not actual whistleblowing. It's I think, you know, I I think this was bad. I remember the guy who uh, Richard Clark, who was the uh, I forget even. Oh, that's right. He was the counterterrorism chief. And, you know, he said, you know, I, I he apologized on behalf of the government for 9-11. It's, you know, that's a guy who, to me, was standing up and uh, making a making a name for himself and cloaking himself in some degree of self-righteousness. You know, I, I, I am apologizing on behalf of the government. Uh, people that have a real problem with the functions of the administration they work for should quit. But back to uh, and they should they should be able to do so publicly and say why and all that. But uh, I don't like this trend we see of bureaucrats who are first and foremost dedicated to their own uh, their own interests. And we don't call them out on this. Uh, so but Christopher Ray is going to be the uh, FBI director, it seems. I don't know. I can't think of any reason why he would get blocked at this point, which also then means it's very likely that this is an individual uh, this is an individual who will uh, be caught in the maelstrom. He's going to be in the center of the political storm. I think that much is uh, obvious. There's no way that the whoever's at the FBI is not going to be forced as a result of the— well, the special counsel investigation, I know, is, is supposed to be separate, but the FBI, if presented with— uh, new evidence or new allegations that have to do with this administration might be in a position to uh, investigate them or might be forced to investigate them because of whatever the facts at the time are. I also think that there is a possibility of the great legal whataboutism, if you will. We talk about whataboutism uh, and the great legal whataboutism that could happen under the Trump administration would be if Donald Trump says, you know what, fine. You want to talk Russia all the time. You want to make this all about Russia. And you, you think that the Democrats think that they're going to uh, slow down and nullify eventually my administration. And, and, and they, of course, want to push for impeachment proceedings. But Democrats think they're going to achieve all that with the Russia, invest, Russia investigation. How, how would they like a reopening of the Hillary email investigation with a special counsel attached to it? Now, I know that the DOJ can make the determination without the president and supposed to make the determination without the president about a special counsel, but there's uh, no reason to believe that that couldn't be done. And I think you could make a very clear case, uh, an honest and ethical case, based on the facts that we know of with Loretta Lynch's intervention, uh, as stated by former FBI Director James Comey, that a special counsel to look at Hillary's emails would be a— and and particularly, forget about just the emails, or put aside for a second the emails, but the possible— obstruction and corruption involved in that process to make sure that a certain outcome happened, to make sure that Hillary would not be prosecuted. Uh, To me, that seems like an entirely justifiable, uh, an entirely worthwhile expenditure of government resources based on what we know. I think that's an option that is, uh, well, again, the administration isn't really supposed to be the one pushing for it, but I think that that could happen. If the president directs the attorney general to look into that corruption and the attorney general says, well, I think it would be best if we had the appearance of uh, of impartiality here. Well, how do you do that? Look at what we have with Russia, special counsel. So that, I think, is 
a future that we may see in relatively short order, and it would just completely upend uh, the entire media narrative. It would put, if you want to talk about putting the media on defense, all of a sudden now you've got Loretta Lynch testifying, uh, you'd have the Hillary investigation brought up again. I, I got to say, I don't like this trend of prosecuting and investigating your political opponents, but Democrats do it so much that it's hard not to get pulled into a a tit for tat. It's hard not to fight fire with fire, even if it means that in the process you are leaving some of your ideals, if not uh, completely aside, you're not making them the pri- the primary uh, tool in your decision making. So yeah, I, I have my I have my uh, prognostication here. I think you you could see some future investigation of obstruction around Hillary's emails, and that would be quite a move for the Trump administration. All right, we're going to talk about overpopulation and much more coming up here in just a few minutes. Want to fight climate change? Have fewer children. That is the title of an article in The Guardian, a very widely read and well-known left-wing British newspaper and i i want to walk you through some of the argument here because it's it's appalling that this is what we will hear in this day and age but it's for anyone who has any questions about just how crazy is the climate change movement uh, how completely uh, detached from reality are people that uh, make these sweeping claims about the impending environmental catastrophe because of co2 in the air they are really nuts all right and this article which which just straight up says that there are people out there there are scientists even who believe that you should have at least one less child maybe you don't have any children you know maybe you don't reproduce uh, maybe you don't do what we are here as a species to do because well for one we are running out of resources of course two co2 emissions and three we're crowding out other species i'll get into all of these arguments but here is what this, this piece in The Guardian says. The next best actions, other than not having another kid, are selling your car, avoiding long flights, and eating a vegetarian diet. Uh, first, who, who thinks that this is going to be advice that anyone is, adhered, is adhering to? This is advice given by people who have had a, a break with their rational self. Uh, this is just complete and utter nonsense. And it goes, it gets worse. They write, uh, these reduce emissions many times more than common green activities, such as recycling, using low energy light bulbs or dry washing on a line. However, the high impact actions are rarely mentioned in government advice and school textbooks, researchers found. I mean, the argument here just is, is bizarre. So not only should you stop having children, not take flights and eat a plant-based diet and don't fly on planes for a long time, uh, you also... Uh, should more or less it doesn't really matter what you're doing with regard to recycling and and uh, different light bulbs and so all the things that the environmental movement has been jamming down our throats mandating for decades now about oh well if you use different light bulbs and take shorter showers and bicycle ride to work instead of taking a car uh, that has no real impact on anything uh, or at least not enough of an impact to make a difference which many of us have been saying all along uh, but here they're they're breaking it down by the numbers, in fact, to make a case for 
why having one fewer child is, if you are a true environmentalist, having less kids or no kids is the single most valiant, brave, and wonderful thing you can do. Uh, they do it by tons of CO2. They break this down in the Guardian article by tons of CO2 equivalent per year for one person. And if you live car-free, it's 2.4 less. Avoid one transatlantic flight, 1.6 less. Buy green energy, 1.4. Switch to electric car, 1.1. Eat a plant-based diet, 0.8. No thank you. T-bone steaks for this guy. Bacon five days a week. And that's for real, by the way. Eat a plant-based diet. Yeah, no way. Replace typical car with hybrid, 0.5. Totally worthless. Wash clothes in cold water, 0.2. Worthless. Hang dry clothes, 0.2. Worthless. Recycle, 0.2. Same. Upgrade light bulbs, 0.1. Have one fewer child, 58.6 tons of CO2 equivalent per year saved here. So what they're trying to tell you, what this study published in Environmental Research Letters is telling you is that having fewer kids will save the planet. Think of how backwards and crazy that is, by the way. And also, uh, think about how they just move from one thing to another. You know, if, we, if you don't recycle, you're a bad person. There's recycle shaming. In fact, even I think some, some kindergartners, I've, I've read stories about how they didn't recycle and teachers gave them a mean lecture about it. But here we're told that that stuff doesn't really matter. You need to have fewer kids. Now, the uh, overpopulation myth, by the way, is, is nothing new. Oh, wait, be before I get to the overpopulation myth, one of the researchers in this study in Sweden named Kimberly Nicholas said the following, In life, there are many values on which people make decisions, and carbon is only one of them. I don't have children, but it is a choice I am considering and discussing with my fiancé. Because we care so much about climate change, that will certainly be one factor we consider in the decision. This is a scientist who thinks that she should not have a kid because, or at least will, would consider, not to overstate, would consider not having a kid because of the CO2 impact on the planet from her having a child. This person is, uh, like I said, having a break with reality has lost all sense of context and objectivity. Maybe she's a brilliant scientist. I don't know. But come on. This is a... Well, this is when you get into it. It's a religious belief. It is, it is a faith-based position, uh, and not in a good way. Um, but this is, population, overpopulation has been around... The idea of overpopulation has been around since ancient times, and it's always very closely tied in the historical record uh, to uh, eugenics, uh, eugenics, of course, being the the practice of or the 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 pseudoscience of improving the human population through controlled breeding, like we are uh, racehorses or dogs or something. You know, we need to be purebreds. That's what eugenics is as a science. Well, I'll get into the science and Francis Galton in a second, but first, e eugenics, which is improving the human race by controlled breeding and, yes, by the elimination of undesirables, the sterilization of undesirables, has been around for a long time. In ancient Sparta, for example, um, a place that I am fond of in the sense that it is fascinating, uh, but was a brutal place, a slave state, and uh, by our own standards, 
it was not about you know freedom, democracy, and, and human rights at all. Um, but in ancient Sparta, uh, Plutarch wrote about the practice of leaving the uh, babies that were sick, that were weakly, that were weaklings, that were uh, considered genetic undesirables at birth, leave them to die on a peak of Mount uh, Tagadis. And the place for this exposure uh, was the apotheti, which means deposits. It's quite a terrible euphemism. Uh, but so in ancient, in ancient, in ancient Greece, rather, they, this was a practice uh, that has been written about. There's some historical record of it. And that was because they didn't want an overpopulation of weak people. They'd have to be supported by others. And so this was an early instance of eugenics and overpopulation coming together. Uh, it was later on in the 19th century that a cousin of Charles Darwin, Sir Francis Galton, uh, applied the theory, Darwin's theory of natural selection to humanity. So this guy comes along and says, oh, Darwin, yeah, he's my like half cousin. He, he's got some interesting stuff. So let's apply natural selection to human beings. Uh, but by apply it, he means let's actually remove the constraints on natural selection, meaning that people that need help get help, and maybe even speed it up by uh, pushing aside sterilizing those who have bad genetics that we don't want passed on to the next generation. So that was an idea that the Nazis seized upon, uh, and they were the, the most notorious, the most uh, engaged in this widespread evil in history. Uh, they engaged in, the, of course, the elimination of people in, in mass uh, in the death camps, millions of people, six million Jews, five million non-Jews, but as part of their uh, their evil final solution uh, machinery or as part of the uh, effort to control the population based on these these deeply racist uh, not just anti-semitic but also anti-semitic but um, notions of inferior populations uh, they murdered people in huge numbers so but they relied on on eugenics theory as the justification of creating the Aryan master race and, and you're all familiar with with that uh, that history but they sterilized also hundreds of thousands of people uh, in addition to the murder of millions of people in the death camps um, and the mentally the mentally ill it should be noted were the first ones uh, and uh, political opponents but the mentally ill were among the first that the Nazis uh, liquidated in the camps um, the Nazis were the worst, and of course there's no one to really ever compare to the Nazis in full, um, but this is not the only time in history, of course, that there have been efforts to exterminate people, and uh, eugenics has been part of the rational the uh, rationalization for that evil. Um, and in this country, we actually have a, a history of eugenics, um, not to the degree of people being uh, sent off into camps to die, but we did, it was U.S. law to sterilize tens of thousands of people starting in 1920. So eugenics as an idea spread into this country. And again, eugenics is always rooted in, at some level, not allowing there to be an overpopulation of undesirables. Uh, and there was a Supreme Court case, in fact, Buck versus Bell. Yeah, Buck versus Bell, um, where a woman who was a, a mentally disabled 
was sterilized and when all the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court upheld it. And it wasn't until the late 1940s that a decision came down that essentially made sterilization uh, illegal uh, in this country. But eugenics had spread as an idea, uh, had spread here. Um, And then Skinner v. Oklahoma, by the way, was the case in 1942. So I said late 1940s. Skinner v. Oklahoma is 1942. Uh, But even more recently, you have the uh, argument that will be made that we are crowding out other species. I mean, this is just insane. Um, You had this group, the Center for Biological Diversity. They were written about in 2011 in The New York Times. They're going to college campuses and they're handing out uh, they're handing out prophylactic devices, condoms. And the propaganda that's literally written on the condoms has to do with don't procreate because you're crowding at other species. They have condoms with things on them like wrap with care, save the polar bear and wear a condom now, save the spotted owl. This was a real this was a real group uh, that was saying that human beings are so uh, are, are so present now all over the globe and are, and are reproducing at such rates that we need to stop because other species, there's going to be mass species die off because there are just too many people in the world. Again, overpopulation and population control as some kind of scientific moral imperative. It's always pseudoscience, it's nonsense, it's based in ignorance and really a kind of pseudoscientific superstition in the case of overpopulation theory. But it's a, it's a very real thing. There are groups that make these arguments still to this day. What we're seeing, our version of the overpopulation myth has to do with uh, CO2, of course, because that's why America is held up as the worst place when it comes to the overpopulation problem. We're not reproducing at as fast a rate as other countries, and we're obviously not as populous as countries like China and India. Uh, but because we consume more, our people produce more CO2, and therefore, by the logic of these crazy movements about overpopulation, uh, by their logic, America is the greatest overpopulator, and so we need to have less Americans, we need to have less babies. Uh, these are arguments that are made in, in public. Groups like the Sierra Club and others that are supposedly somewhat mainstream will dabble in these arguments in one way or another. Uh, they're based on a Malthusian fallacy. Uh, Malthus, for those wondering, is uh, Thomas Robert Malthus, who was a, an 18th to 19th century English writer and philosopher and scholar who figured the population will increase to a point where there'll be a shortage of food and there'll be die-off until they, uh, they get in alignment with each other, our ability to feed ourselves and level the population. He was wrong, by the way, of course, and we continue to have Malthusian fallacies uh, to this day, and CO2 is no different. We, we may get much better at handling any possible climate change, which, of course, I don't think that climate change is the threat that the climate change alarmists do at all, uh, but we may get much better at it. We are already decarbonizing naturally as a, uh, as a planet. That's just happening because of the way our energy sectors are going, and there's, there's no need for this hysterical overreaction to it, but, uh, but it's a, a long-standing... Uh, it's a long-standing statist problem. People that believe very strongly in the state, they want the state to be able to control population. They want the state to control who has kids. Uh, and it's, it's one of the most insidious forms of control imaginable, isn't it? 
uh, to tell someone that they can and cannot have children. Of course, it goes on in China with the one-child policy, uh, but it's being made now as a a moral argument to save the world from climate change, have less kids, part of the overpopulation fallacy, and also at its root, there's always some tie-in to the ideology of uh, eugenics. Whenever you're talking about overpopulation, it's always overpopulation of and when, when the left and these progressives are making the case. It's overpopulation of, quote, undesirables, whether it's in a localized or a global fashion, right? In Sparta, it was, it was localized. In a global way, now it's uh, Americans produce too much CO2, so we are, in a sense, the undesirables and should have fewer children as a result of this to make up for our sins. I know, guys, it's the, the ideology is insane, and it, it's really um, it's appalling and, and uh, upsetting that any scientist anywhere would, would give credibility to this kind of thinking because uh, I promise you they are not just immoral but also wrong on the facts about overpopulation. But here we are, the Guardian newspaper in the UK saying, have less kids, save the planet. Can't make this stuff up, everybody. Hitting a break, we'll be right back. I don't know how many of you saw this, but there was a really gut-wrenching story about a uh, young man, African-American, who was vacationing in Greece, and there was some dispute involving him wanting to take a photo with a waitress in on this Greek island. It was in a bar that uh, ha- was having Serbia night, and there were a bunch of Serbs in the bar, and the waitress was Serbian, and this African-American man wants to take a, a young man, wants to take a photo with this waitress, and some kind of scuffle breaks out, and they all uh, rushed him, this, this one American who was, uh, no one was able to come to his aid in time, and it's on video, and the video is, is just brutal. And they just punched him and kicked him to death in 30 seconds. A, a mob uh, over absolutely nothing, uh, over a, a stupid dispute that nobody would have remembered in, in three minutes. Um, it's always really troubling whenever you see this. And, you know, i, I got to say, as an American, of course, whenever something like this happens, there's a part of me that thinks... Uh, wish wish I could have been there with some with some of my people to to save this guy and and prevent this from happening. I mean, you know, you feel that way about a lot of things, right? You feel that way when a police officer is shot or when anyone who's uh, innocent anywhere is is attacked and and beaten up in this in this way. You know, you wish you could swoop in and and have stopped it from happening. Uh, but I, I'm just reminded of how you know whenever you're in a foreign country, even a place like Greece, that's it's had its troubles of late, but it's relatively speaking a, a safe place, a safe place to visit, and you know it's not pr- really high levels of crime. You just as as a young guy, uh, you know, you never know what you're dealing with with the locals, and it's just always better to to err on the side of caution. I've seen too many things and and heard too many stories that fortunately didn't end like this. This was a true tragedy and, and a horrific assault, but. Uh, you, you don't want to get into it with the locals ever, even a little bit, because something like this can happen, and you can find yourself in the middle of a mob. I mean, I remember being uh, some of the some of the training I received had to do with, you know, what, what do you do if you're, you know, the the obvious Westerner in a country where a mob forms around you? You know, how, how do you handle that? Uh, and let me tell you, it's it's not something that you not a situation you'd ever want to be in. 
and I just saw this story, and, and also, by the way, the police force, because of budget cuts in Greece, because of their financial austerity, there's no police force in this town anymore. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, it, it just really hit home. I, I, it could have been me uh, on vacation, and I could see myself being in the same, the same circumstances as this, uh, as this young man. And, um, you know, he was beaten to death while he was on vacation. Bakari Henderson looked like a, a guy with a really promising future at I wish somebody could have saved him. Somebody could have been there to have his back and prevent this from happening. Uh, it's just just a gut punch. Anyway, um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna. I gotta switch topics here, team. Uh, we're gonna discuss the twenty-seven gender roles that are out there, or twenty-seven gender categories rather. Uh, we'll be back with that in just a few. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Sometimes on this show, I make reference to aggressive agenda for transgender rights and the incredible array of different gender categories that are out there. And I will just say that I couldn't name off the top of my head even more than a handful of gender categorizations, but there are dozens of them, if you believe the left. And increasingly, this is being manifested in official government forms and this is going to become more and more part of daily life, as we have discussed here. Uh, the state of Oregon, Washington, D.C., and others are giving out gender-neutral ID cards now. But this really caught my eye. I, I was pretty astounded when I saw this. Uh, let me just take you to the VIDA survey. Now, VIDA is Women in Literary Arts. It's a website, and it's clearly some leftist feminist progressive stuff on there, but that's fine. They sent out a survey, quote, seeking to explore uh, critical and cultural perceptions of literary work by women. Uh, that's the description of what, of what Vita is, this women in literary arts. And they had a, a survey, a survey on intersectionality that they sent out, and on gender... So specifically, remember, intersectional is a way of the left. It's, it's the way that the left defines the, the crossover or describes the crossover between identity politics and oppression or uh, between various uh, ethnic, racial and gender groups and uh, privilege or lack thereof. So intersectionality views every interaction in day to day life through the lens of who are you? And who is trying to either oppress you or who are you oppressing? So this is an intersectionality survey of VITA, Women in Literary Arts. And under the Section 4 gender, my friends, I looked at this and I had to read it a few times. I mean, this is the Baskin-Robbins approach to gender. You know, Baskin-Robbins has 31 flavors. This survey uh, has... 27 genders on it. And I thought, okay, the number itself stops you in your tracks for a moment. You go, wow, that's a lot of genders. 
And keep in mind that not long ago at Harvard University, a flyer was distributed by an office devoted to LGBTQ issues saying that gender identity can change as frequently as day to day. So this is a a highly fluid and incredibly complicated uh, way of discussing what in reality is a a choice of two, male or female. But the Vita intersectionality survey or intersectional survey on gender had the following categories. I wanted to walk through them with you and tell you what I uh, know about them. And, and also, I'll be honest with you, there were a number of these, and all I do is read about this progressive leftist stuff uh, all the time, and there are a number of these that I thought, I have, I have no idea what that means. I just have no idea what that even means. And so I, I had to educate myself on the, uh, the 27 different genders. Now, some of these I knew right off the bat, and, but anyway, here's what we have. Okay, you can check or fill in all that apply. Um, Transgender, which we are familiar with, right? Transgender is someone who is has uh, crossed uh, over to the other gender, usually through sur- a combination of surgery and uh, drugs, hormones, but not necessarily. Cisgender, which is someone who identifies with the gender of their birth, right? So uh, the cisgender uh, description of Buck is male, so it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I had to look up to make sure that I was correct on this one. Agender, which I thought, okay, does that really mean what I think it means? And the answer was yes. It means someone who just defies gender. There's no such thing as gender. It's like apolitical. You know, you, you don't care about politics. You, you don't have political opinions. Agender is you, you, are, you are beyond gender. In a sense, you are post-gender. Binary which is similar to cisgender, meaning that you identify as male or female. I want to note that on this gender survey with 27 options, male and female never appear. So male and female on the gender survey for women in literature, this VITA organization, male and female aren't even options. Never mind the only options. But let's get back into this. Um... uh, binary right is is sort of cisgender butch which is uh, a a female with characteristics i believe that are that are considered to be male uh this is i had never seen before cathab which is coercively assigned female at birth so cathab is a so that means you were told you were female at birth and i guess you haven't made up your mind since I, i don't know uh Coercively assigned male at birth, Camab. I've uh, never heard of that either. Demigirl, demi woman, uh, demi meaning half, right, or or partial. Um, so like a demigod is not really a god, but it's kind of a god. So demigirl, demi woman is kind of half or partial man, uh, or same thing with demi boy and demi man. Those are the next categories. So it's half or partial. This I I have. No idea, but it says Samoan after it. Fafafine, that's a gender that you can check now. Uh, Femi, which I assume is the opposite of butch, which we remember was one of the alternatives you had just a few moments ago. Gender fluid means you're kind of like still moving around on this whole gender spectrum, not really clear yet what you are. You're, you know, you've, you've got your toe in a few different gender pools. 
gender nonconforming, which I think maybe means that you have your own interpretation of what your gender is. I'm just looking at the words and coming up with that. Uh, gender queer, which which just means that you refuse to conform to traditional notions of gender. Maybe you think you're both or neither or a, more, a little more one than, than another. Uh, hijra, which I know of as the... Um, the pilgrimage that all Muslims are supposed to make to Mecca, and uh, it's also from uh, in a historical context the Hijra, which again that that's the the pilgrimage that all Muslims are as a tenet of the faith supposed to do at least once in their lifetime, and it is because uh, the Prophet Muhammad went from uh, Mecca uh, from from Mecca to Medina, uh, but in this context, uh, Hijra refers to. A, a person of Indian South Asian gender? I, I don't know. I did that I, I just still don't have an answer for you on that one. It, remember, these are all categories. You can click and you can check off these categories on this survey. And these are categories that exist elsewhere too, right? And increasingly, I think you're going to see the government adopting these as, as categories for gender. Uh, intersex, which means you're kind of in between. You're on the spectrum. You're, you're gender fluid, but you're kind of in between. Uh, Mahu, which means native, which is native Hawaiian. Uh, okay, I, that's listed as a gender. Multiply gendered or multi-gender, so that's just officially more than one gender. Non-binary, which just means you refuse to accept the terminology of male and female. You are non-binary. Polygender, which I I guess is different than multiply gendered because it's poly. I don't know. Trans plus have absolutely no idea what that means. Uh, it's trans, but like a little, a little more trans. Uh, trans feminine, trans masculine. So you are trans, but you're either more feminine or more masculine. Trans misogyny constrained. By the way, that's someone who is at the quote intersection of transphobia and misogyny. So they are constrained by the fact that people are afraid of their being a woman and being a trans woman. I had to look that one up. Two-spirit, Native American, First Nation, and then decline to state is the final, uh, the final option here. Now, I, I, a few things really jump out at me. First of all, a lot of these different terms are just that, terms. And in fact, many of them refer to the same thing. These are a lot of different ways of saying the same thing. But you know, I, I have to say, when you look at a chart, a gender chart like this, and you find yourself having absolutely no idea what, and, and you shouldn't, by the way. I mean, there's no, there's no everyday person, no matter how well-read and, and how uh, insightful you may be, uh, there's no way that you would just happen to know what, in the context of this survey, uh, trans misogyny constrained would be, I would think. Maybe that's just because I couldn't get that one, but, or... Uh, what some of these other the difference between multiply gendered or polygendered? I would offer to you that even the progressives who push this stuff themselves really have no idea. They they don't know uh, what the differences are. But the purpose here is not specificity. In fact, the purpose is just to cater to what is a social fashion right now, a fashion on the left to destroy traditional notions of gender. Now. 
you will be often led to believe that there's no consequence to this, there's no cost, that this makes people feel more comfortable, and that it's really just a function of consideration and kindness, uh, two of the most important traits any human being can possess in their day-to-day lives. So you want to be considerate and kind to transgender people by using their preferred pronoun, by not deadnaming them. Deadnaming, of course, being when you refer to a trans person by their previous name associated with their previous gender. So if, uh, if you know, I became, um, you know, Jennifer, um, and you called me Buck, you'd be deadnaming me. Uh, but it's, we're led to believe that this is all about being kind and being nice. But this is, on the one hand, of course, a, a giant exercise in virtue signaling, right? If you use these terms, and it should also social signaling. Right. You're virtuous because you're nice, because you cater to transgender whims and fashions, and you're supposedly being nice to people who I think actually in many cases just need help, uh, need substantial assistance, uh, often emotional and perhaps uh, mental health assistance for where they are in their lives, which there's no shame in that, by the way. Uh, mental health is as much a part of, of everyone's, uh, everyone's existence as what we think of more traditionally as, as physical health. But those two things, by the way, are inextricably linked. And the more you look at the mental and its impact on the body, the more we can all see that mental health disorders are, in fact, every bit as real as uh, physical disorders like a, a flu or a bacterial infection. So, uh, I, but this is virtue signaling. It's social signaling because if you know these terms, if you refer to someone as uh by gender or intersex or trans feminine, if you're an author and you write that or you tweet that out somewhere, you post it on your Facebook page, you're letting everyone else know that you're on the cutting edge of the progressive left. You are, in fact, defining the progressive orthodoxy in real time. You, in a sense, are a high priest of the progressive orthodoxy. But keep in mind that, of course, they would reject the notion of priests uh, for the most part. So um, at least in the traditional sense uh, of a priest. This is a survey that I think tells us a lot about where the future, what the future is going to look like when it comes to gender on the left, if they have their way. And it is nonsensical. And this is what I really also wanted to get into. It doesn't make any sense. There's no reason to go through all of this. This is an exercise in hypersensitivity under the guise of not just kindness, because, as I said, I find kindness to be a compelling rationale, but under the guise of science. That to have 27 different genders listed here somehow is scientific when all you have to do is look at the genders, figure out what the definitions are, and most of them are just, are just describing the same conditions or the same psychological predispositions. So th- this is not based in science, but we're going to be forced to bend the knee on this. We're going to be told that you better understand and use and be fluent in discussions about the 27 genders or else you're a bigot. So now to be reality-based, to refuse to partake in what is a delusion, is to uh, put yourself in a position where you could be called a bigot. It's a crazy world we live in, my friends. We'll be back uh, with more in just a few. You're going to have to put this in the uh, unintentional hilarity category. So David Brooks, who is a New York Times writer, he is supposed to be one of their two resident conservatives, but I'm pretty sure he voted for Hillary. And you know, on any given day, it's about 
that a David Brooks column will certainly read like something that you would expect a mainstream Democrat in good standing to write. Uh, but he, he wrote a column on an issue that that's a, a real concern. That's something that we should be thinking about more as a society, I think, often than we do. And it had to do and it has to do with, well, his title is How We Are Ruining America. And he talks about how the uh, more educated and wealthier uh, classes of Americans are perpetuating that with their own children and making sure that their own children have the same advantages or really more, in fact. I mean, I see my generation and so many of the parents who have been successful have just completely cleared the pathway for their children to be successful in a way that comes very quickly, very easily, and is all but assured uh, financially and professionally. But this, uh, this, this New York Times piece goes into some of that, and, and I, that's not a new thought, by the way. It's not a new uh, situation. But here's where it gets hilarious. I mean, this is a classic. Uh, I, I, this is really the Tom Friedman as well, Anytime, who's also a New York Times columnist. Anytime Tom Friedman needed an anecdote about uh, whatever country he was visiting or whatever phenomenon, global phenomenon he wanted to discuss, all of a sudden we're hearing about a, a cab driver or a guy, you know, handing him a coffee at a kiosk somewhere who had some really uh, insightful one-liner about, you know, the global economy. And you're like, hmm, isn't that, isn't that uh, convenient for Mr. Friedman? But here's what, uh, this is, I just love it. This was so unintentionally funny. You have uh, David Brooks write, recently, I t- and by the way, he's writing about classism and elitism in this country, okay? And he's a New York Times editorialist, and, here, and he lives here in Manhattan, or probably in Brooklyn, actually. Here's what he writes, which you know, is a very, very fancy left-wing place. Uh, here's what he writes. Recently, I took a friend with only a high school degree to lunch. Insensitively, I led her into a gourmet sandwich shop. Suddenly, I saw her face freeze up as she was confronted with sandwiches named Padrino and Pomodoro and ingredients like sopressata, capicolo, and striata baguette. I quickly asked her if she wanted to go somewhere else, and she anxiously nodded yes, and we ate Mexican. Oh my gosh, she was terrified by the sandwiches and the exotic ingredients. I mean, keep in mind that you walk into Wendy's, and on the menu, they'll have a Tuscan chicken on ciabatta. I mean, this this is not some foreign language that's on the board at this fancy sandwich shop but i just think it's hilarious that brooks's response here he only had a high school degree and the sandwich names were so complicated and i just didn't know what to do about it and oh good heavens i was so insensitive and it's like wow you have defined elitism my friend you think you need a college education to appreciate a good fancy sandwich with some ingredients in there that have more than one syllable amazing isn't it uh, this is it was a, a classic New York Times elitism moment. Oh, my gosh, the Pomodoro and Soprasata. What will we do? Uh, all right, team. Thank you, as always, for hanging out with me. It's great. It's an honor and a pleasure. Um, excited to chill with you tomorrow here in the Freedom Hut for our Thursday show. Uh, until then, my friends, no matter what comes your way, Shields Hut. <laughs>